Happy Sabbath. Oh, there we go. Happy Sabbath, church. It is good to see you guys. I, um, I took a last minute, you know one of those last minute breaks that you didn't plan on, but uh, give me a moment. There we go. Yeah, I took a little bit of a last minute break last month, so I was not here as many Sabbaths as I had originally planned to be here. So I've missed you guys. I went down to Dunsborough with the family, spent a couple of nights there at an Airbnb surrounded by so many kangaroos, you guys. There were kangaroos everywhere. I've never seen that many kangaroos in one place. Um, it was nice. I, it was nice when I was in my car. When I left my car, I was running because, you know, I'm, I'm a city kid. I did, did, did animals and wildlife. and I'm not very good with that stuff. But it was awesome. We had a really good time. And um, it's really, really, really good to be back. I wanted to do a, just a few, few little announcements before we get into the Bible. The first one is, I just want to, like, put this on blast a huge, huge thank you to the AV team who has been working extremely hard lately um, to keep things running well, uh, particularly in the hall and on YouTube. Um, we had a meeting this past week on Monday, and I got to see firsthand just how much insanity goes into making that thing work back there. And they've, it's been a struggle because obviously after COVID, they've been expected to do things that their gear isn't really set up for doing, and they've been trying to do the best they can. So when you see an, EV, an AV guy today, say thank you. They're, do, they're doing an absolutely fantastic job. And for those who are watching online or in the hall, um, we are currently in the process of upgrading a bunch of stuff uh, so that the stream can be more, more pleasant in the future. Uh, but it was incredible, man. We were sitting here Monday. We were here for like two hours. My brain was fried after about 20 minutes because they're talking about like you upgrade this one tiny little thing and then you got to get that thing and then you got to get those four things, but you got to make sure that thing is compatible. And it was just like, it just kept going. <laughs> and I was like, wow, wow, that's crazy. So thank you, AV guy, when you see him today. They're doing amazing work. Also, just for the rest of us, for the church at large, I just want to really encourage you guys in this space that we currently occupy uh, with, with the situation, with this virus. I just read an article two weeks ago that basically said if a vaccine showed up tomorrow, it would still be another 18 months before the world would begin to kind of recover some sense of normalcy. And so what that means is that this, we're in this for the long haul. This is going to be a long journey. And church as we know it, the programs and the way we typically do things as we know it are, are not going to launch back into that normalcy that we are used to for quite some time. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you because the church is bigger than events and programs. The church is you. So I want to keep encouraging you that even though things are going to be a little bit different here for some time, continue to use these gatherings and the time that we do spend together as a launch pad for the mission God has for you throughout the week. 
This is a perfect time in our lives for us to remember that church is not two-hour Sabbath morning. Church is every day. And so whether it's a sermon or a conversation or a Bible study, a Sabbath school that you have here, let these gatherings that we have just launch you into the mission that God has for you that coming week so that God can use you and me to continue to build his kingdom. Even though we can't have big programs, we can still build his kingdom. Amen. Amen. Who's ready to get into the Bible? Is it just me? Two people? I saw two hands. Three of us. We're going to have fun this morning. Woohoo! Come with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. While you guys are looking for Luke chapter 15, I'm going to have a sip of water. Thank you to whoever put the water bottle. Every week there's a water bottle here for the preacher. You're amazing. Um, Luke chapter 15, if you're there, say I'm there. All right, beautiful. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. goodness. Lord, thank you that the weather is warming up. And thank you for this beautiful Sabbath day where we get to gather together and spend some time in the Bible. Lord, as we open your word, I pray, my prayer, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here. Use me despite me, Lord. May your words leap from these pages of the Bible into the hearts of each and every one of us. May we leave this place transformed by your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've been exploring this uh, sermon series the last few times I've been here on the parable of the lost son. But I'm taking a slightly different approach to the parable of the lost son than uh, what you may, might be used to, because rather than preaching straight through the parable and coming up with one or two applications, what I'm actually doing is revisiting the parable over and over again with different lenses and looking at the gospel or aiming to experience the gospel within the parable of the lost son as a multidimensional thing. Because the gospel is way bigger than just, I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven. There's so much more, there's so much color and beauty and relevance to the gospel that I want us to experience as we explore this story. And so I'm building this little by little. And in the previous sermon, we, or in the previous sermons rather, because we've done two of them already, one of the main keys that we've been exploring is that the gospel is so much more than an academic formula that you can dissect and figure out its anatomy and have long drawn out debates over. The gospel is fundamentally an experience, an encounter with God. And that God wants you to not just have an intellectual understanding of the gospel, which is good, by the way, don't misunderstand me, but he wants you to not just have that, but to actually have an encounter with him. That the words of Jesus, when Jesus said, rivers of living water will flow from within, that that experience would be a reality in your life. And so in Luke chapter 15, we're going to continue our journey today. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. I'm starting from verse 11. And it begins like this. There was a man who had two Sons. The story begins with two sons. 
And if you were here for part two of the sermon series, it makes perfect sense that the story begins with two sons. Because Jesus is currently sitting in a room with two types of people. On the one side of the room are the sinners and the rejects that Jesus is hanging out with. And on the other side of the room are the religious elites who are criticizing Jesus for hanging out with the sinners and the rejects. The religious elite are confused that Jesus is hanging out with these sinners. And so in Luke 15, verse 1, they ask the question. They're they're confused about this relationship, about this scenario. Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, hanging out with sinners. But as we saw in part two of the series, this isn't merely something that unfolds in Luke chapter 15. This tension is present all throughout the book of Luke because Luke captures the most scandalous aspect of Jesus' ministry, and it's this, that Jesus is building a new Israel, and he's not doing it with religious people. He's doing it with sinners. This is a deeply offensive aspect of Jesus' ministry. And so in Luke 15, once again, Jesus clashes with the elites. Verse 1, they ask, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so Jesus responds, and he tells three stories. And in those three stories, Jesus confronts both the sinner, but also the religious elite. And so of those three parables, I'm only focusing on the one of the lost son for the sake of time. But the, the parable begins with two sons. One of these sons relates to the sinners in the crowd, and the other son relates to the religious elite. Two types of people, two sons. Verse 12, I'm going to jump into verse 12 now. We're just setting the stage here. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now let's pause here for a moment because what Jesus is doing is Jesus is beginning to unpack something really profound. It's going to take me a few minutes to work through this. And then we can come back to the story and make more sense of it. So one of the brothers, the younger brother, he approaches the father. And the first words he speaks are these. Give me my share. Now, the cultural context of this request is really tragic. Because typically speaking, an estate is not passed on until the owner of the estate dies. And so when the son says to the father, give me my share of the estate, it's as if he's saying to the father, dad, you're already dead to me. Your presence in my life is meaningless. Your existence doesn't have any consequence for me anymore. It's like I'm already considering you dead. So give me my share of the estate. 
What's wrong with this kid? Spoiled, ungrateful child. See, it's right there in verse 12. Give me my share. This is the hint that Jesus is dropping. In, in, in the very words of this young son, it's me, it's my, it's mine. Jesus is highlighting a painful reality at the core of fallen humanity. That there is an impulse that drives us. The impulse of give me mine. But why does this matter? Why does this matter, right? So here, I'm going to need you to bear with me for a few moments. I'm going to try and explain this quickly without, uh, without, without confusing anyone. Here, here, let me try and explain why this matters. See, Jesus is surrounded by Pharisees, and the Pharisees had a very, very simple perspective on life. By the way, it's probably important to note that oftentimes when we talk about the Pharisees and we critique their religious ideals um, and their ideas, it's important to note that the Pharisees aren't truly representative of what real Judaism was, right? If you read the rabbis and uh, people who, who had broader views, they, they, it was a fairly balanced ideas and perspectives on God. But the Pharisees, they had political agendas as well as religious ones. And so they often only highlighted the bits and the pieces that promoted them and, and supported them as well as the Sadducees. And so the Pharisees are not really representative of true Jewish faith. And so Jesus now, he's surrounded by these Pharisees. And the Pharisees have this really simple worldview. And the worldview goes like this. And some of you might be like, hey, that's my worldview. What's wrong with that? Um, well, you'll find out at some point in the sermon, hopefully. Here's the, here's the worldview. Here's the Pharisees' worldview. Obey. Do the right thing. God will bless you. Disobey. Do the wrong thing. God will punish you. That's it. That's the worldview. Obey. Do the right thing. God will bless you. Disobey. Do the wrong thing. God will punish you. You don't want punishment? Obey. You don't want to obey? You get punished. That's it. Simple. Done. Now this is why the Pharisees rejected blind people and people with disabilities. Because as far as they were concerned, they were blind or disabled because God was punishing them. Because they had done something wrong. And if God was punishing them for doing something wrong, why should I be nice to them? Why should I welcome them into my house? Why should I minister to them? Why should I be kind to them? God's rejected them. That justifies me rejecting them as well. So the Pharisees had this theology that went something like this. Sin is the bad choices that you've made, your behavior. When you sin, you choose to disobey God. And so God punishes you or your children. A perfect example is John chapter 9. And by the way, this isn't simply an idea that the Pharisees had. This had permeated the culture of the day. So in John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples and they run into a blind man. And the disciples ask Jesus, Jesus, who sinned? Him or his parents that he's born blind? So this was the common belief in the day. That if something was going wrong in your life, it's because you had disobeyed God 
or your parents had disobeyed God and now the wrath was falling on you. So what was the solution to this? Oh, the Pharisees had a simple solution. The solution is God's law. God has given us his law. If we keep his law, he will bless us. And through obedience to his law, we can gain his favor. If we break it, he will punish us. In fact, the Pharisees, you can read about it in the Talmud. They had a belief that if everyone in Israel kept the law perfectly for one day, the Messiah would come. The solution is the law. And so let me break this down simply. Sort of the pharisaical worldview of the day. When you sin, you do bad things. You break the law. And so then what is holiness? Holiness is doing good things. It's keeping the law. And with this theological framework, the religious man was perfectly justified in rejecting, shunning, insulting sinners. Why? Because what is a sinner? A sinner is simply this, a person who chooses to willfully disobey God. And what is a saint? A person who chooses to willfully obey God. And so I'm going to spend my time with the saints who willfully choose to obey God and stay away from all those sinners who willfully choose to disobey God. Simple. But there's a problem. When you understand this theological framework, now you understand why Jesus' project of creating a new Israel with sinners and hanging out with sinners made no sense. Why? See, you got to be a Pharisee here. Why would a holy God spend time with people who deliberately choose to break his law? You've got to put yourself in the Pharisees' shoes for a moment to appreciate their confusion and their frustration as they look at Jesus spending time with sinners, with tax collectors, with, with prostitutes, with drunkards, and he's going to their houses, and he's going to their parties, and he's hanging out with them, and he's got this married lady who used to have like all these demons. It's like it doesn't make any sense. They're sinners. They deliberately choose to break God's law. Why would... God's supposed son, spend time with them. And so they rejected Jesus because in their minds, there is no way a holy God would associate with people who purposefully and deliberately choose to break his law. But Jesus was operating under a different thought. Jesus was operating according to a different model of reality. Of theology let me show this to you very quickly so we can get back to the prodigal son story see according to Jesus again Pharisees sin you do bad things holiness you do good things that's it according to Jesus though sin is more than just doing bad things sin in Jesus' view, is not merely a behavioral issue. It is a heart issue. The heart is sick. It's not merely the bad things that you do. It's that you have a heart, and I have a heart, that beats to a selfish rhythm. And the rhythm goes something like this. Give me my share. Me. 
my, mine. That's the rhythm of the sinful heart. And this sinful heart is at the core of our being. And out of the sinful heart flow all the bad behaviors. And so Jesus said it really well, and probably the best in Mark chapter 7, verse 20. I'll read it to you. He says this. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. Verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, adultery, murder, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, Jesus says, come from within. So the Pharisees saw sin as merely behavior or a behavioral issue. Jesus saw sin as a heart issue. They saw it as choosing to do bad things. Jesus saw that the bad things people do are merely the symptom of something deeper. A heart infected with sin. Now here's the thing. If sin is merely doing bad things, then educating people to do the right thing and creating a social environment where you facilitate them doing the right thing is the way to go. And then you're perfectly justified in rejecting anyone who doesn't comply with this way of being. But if sin isn't an issue of behavior, but an issue of the heart, if your heart is sick, if your heart is fallen, if your heart is the center of sin in your life, then you have a problem. Because here's the problem. The law cannot fix the heart. Rules cannot fix the heart. Standards cannot fix the heart. Religion, good behavior, in fact, nothing can fix the heart. The only hope that we discover in the narrative of the gospel and scripture, the only hope that man has is not to improve the heart. No, he has to be given a new heart. So in Jesus' theology, sin begins with a sinful heart, which means holiness is not doing good things. Holiness is having a new heart. The Pharisees focused on behavior, on rules, on standards, on commandments. Jesus focused on the heart. You don't need new behavior. You need a new heart. So when Jesus introduces the younger brother who says, give me my share, he highlights that the younger son has a heart issue. But then he goes a little further. He goes a little further. I love Jesus because Jesus, man, Jesus, Jesus is, yeah, he's pretty radical. He goes a step further to really drive this issue home and dig it into the conscience of the people who are listening around him. Toward the end of the parable, The younger brother comes back home, and the father throws a party. Now, if you've never heard the parable before, don't worry about it. We'll revisit it next week. We'll look at some other details that I'm skipping for today. So the younger son eventually comes back home. Dad throws a party. And then the older brother responds. Look at it in verse 28. Look at what the older brother says. Verse 28. The older brother speaking here. Look, he's speaking to the father. Look, 
all these years, I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me, even a young goat, so that I could celebrate with my friends. Do you guys notice what just happened there? Five times in one sentence, he refers to himself. Why? Because despite all of his obedience, he's full of self. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is, 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 is highlighting the older brother now who comes to the father. My obedience and my reputation and my behavior and my commitment. The older brother represents the religious class. Remember, Jesus has two people sitting in front of him. He's got two brothers, one that relates to the sinners, one that relates to the religious. The older brother relates to the religious class, and he's no different to the younger. Both are driven by the same impulse of me, me, me. And here's the scandal. Please don't miss this. You've got you to gotta appreciate the scandal of what Jesus is doing here. You have this spoiled brat who goes out and lives a hedonistic life driven by self-centered impulse of me, my, mine. And here you have the disciplined, strict, obedient son who stays home and follows all the rules, but he's still driven by the same self-centered impulse of I, me, mine. In other words, Jesus is insisting to an audience in front of him of sinners and religious elites, you are both the same. Ouch. And beyond this, he's communicating to the religious all of your rules. They can't change your heart. Because sin isn't merely an issue of behavior. That's just a symptom. Sin is a heart infected by the impulse of self. It cannot be cured. It cannot be modified. It cannot be improved. It must be replaced. This is why I keep saying the gospel is not something that you merely understand. It's something that you experience. When I study the Bible with people, when I explore the gospel with people, I tell them, in the journey of the gospel, if you think about it as a road that's this long, I can only take you part of the way there. I can explain the gospel to you. But if you really want to experience the gospel, if you really want to taste God, I can't do that for you because there's no explanation. There's no formula. There's no academic thing that I can do that will bring you into an encounter with God. That is private. That is between you and him. Because it's one thing for me to explain to you the basic tenets of the gospel and scripture. It's a whole other thing for you to have a one-on-one -on -one with God where God takes your sinful heart and replaces it with his own. I can't do that for you. I can't manifest that in your life. I can't make that happen for you. That is an experience that cannot be constrained within PowerPoint slides. And the tragedy of so much modern-day Christianity is we seem to have recuperated the Pharisees' concepts. We think sin is simply doing bad things. And when you believe that sin is simply doing bad things, you naturally believe that holiness is simply doing good things. And that's why so many of us are, are so obsessed with rules. And by the way, don't get me wrong, you know. Preacher has to throw his disclaimer out. You know how it is. Before he gets angry, emails all week. I love the law of God. I love the standards of God. I think they're awesome. 
But the problem is that living in harmony with God's law doesn't happen by trying to live in harmony with God's law. Living in harmony with God's law happens only when first we receive a new heart from him. But many times in church, we, we operate according to the same pattern where we think sin is simply doing bad things, holiness is simply doing good things, and so we get all obsessed with rules, and then we start making stuff up that ain't even in the Bible, and we end up with like 10,000 commandments instead of 10 because we're obsessed with the behavior modification and, and, the, and, the, and the rules, and, and we end up thinking that it's our job to make sure everybody else gets the rules because we think sin is a behavioral issue. And that the way to remedy sin is to bring everyone into submission to this checklist of do's and don'ts. I have a friend of mine who recently went to church for the first time in a long time. He's going through a really difficult time because he's a drug addict who's currently in recovery. And he's been struggling a lot, questions about God, questions about his own life. And so he visited a church, an Adventist church. And I was excited for him. I was like, oh, finally he found the church. He's not here in Perth. And so, oh, finally he found the church. How good is that? And a friend of mine who's also been calling him a lot and just discipling him and nurturing him, we were both excited. Oh, finally he found the church. This is good. This is good. This is awesome. This friend of ours turns up to church. On the first Sabbath he's there, brand new guest. A lady in the church decides it's her responsibility to make sure that he knows that he's supposed to keep the Sabbath and how he's supposed to keep the Sabbath. And she lectures the poor guy <laughs> on all the rules. That afternoon, he calls a friend of mine and says, dude, I'm never going back to that church. But if if you ask the lady what she was doing, she's not an evil person. She really thought she was doing God a favor. She really believes she's serving God in her best capacity. And it's rooted not in her being a nasty person, but in her having this misunderstanding that if sin is merely doing bad. Sin is you're breaking the Sabbath. So holiness is you just start keeping it. Sin is you're doing all these little bad things. So holiness is you just adopt your behavior. You, you improve your behavior to match the checklist, and now you're holy. No, it doesn't work that way. Sin is an issue of the heart. And holiness manifests only in the life of he who receives a new heart from above. Rules don't save people. Commandments cannot redeem. Standards cannot restore. To the contrary, they are like fuel on the fire of rebellion. Everybody in the world knows smoking causes cancer. People still smoke. Everybody knows texting and driving kills. I see them all the time while I'm on the road. <laughs> Everyone in the world knows drugs ruin your life. Still take drugs. Information, rules, commands, they cannot regenerate the heart. They do not awaken love within. They do not lead us to new life. I imagine if the law could redeem the sinner, then maybe Jesus would have spent all his time lecturing the tax collectors and sinners around him. But instead, he's present with them. He loves them. He listens to them. He cares for them. He ministers to their needs. All throughout my life, I've known Adventists who want their non-Adventist friends to know the truth. 
And so they go to them and say, hey, you shouldn't be drinking. You shouldn't be smoking. You shouldn't be eating that. And my question is, what in the world is that going to accomplish? If you want your non-believing friends and family to come to Christ, stop talking about rules and invite them into a relationship with Jesus. Let them see that true faith is not a restrictive checklist, but about a living relationship with God. Well, pastor, what about all the mess in their life? Yes, that's what the Holy Spirit is for. Not you. Rules, commandments, the law, they're all beautiful. And Paul is very clear in the book of Romans that God's law is beautiful, it's just, it's good. But here's the thing, they cannot save anyone. They can't save us because our problem isn't behavior. Our problem is the heart, which means that the solution to sin is not new behavior. The solution is a new heart, and a new heart doesn't come through the law. It comes only through faith in Jesus. But now the story gets a little bit worse. Right? I'm almost done here, but I'm going to dig into the story a little bit more because the story gets a little bit worse. Right? Jesus wants to drive this point home. The young man, he takes his share of the estate, and he goes to this faraway country, and he squanders everything. We're going to talk about that some more. I'm going to focus on that part of the story a little bit more next time. Today, I'm kind of skipping over it. He squanders everything, living this wild, hedonistic life. And then he ends up broke. And he's got nothing to show for himself. So Jesus says he goes to work for a pig farmer. Now, that might mean a little bit something to those of you who are Adventists here and don't eat pork, unclean animal. But I guarantee you it's not as gross as it would be (laughs) to Jesus' first century Jewish audience. See, Jesus is purposefully trying to bring up emotions and feelings of disgust in his listeners. He's driving this thing home. By the way, there's a really good tip for those of you who like to preach. A really good tip for for preaching good sermons is taking abstract ideas and making them real in people's lives. The way you do that is by taking an abstract idea and bringing it into sensory experience. So for example, I can explain to you that it's impossible for a person to save themselves. That's an abstract idea. But if I say that trying to save yourself is like trying to climb to the moon with a rope of sand that brings in the sensory experience. You you can kind of imagine a rope of sand. You can feel, you can sense it. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's taking this abstract idea and he's bringing it into the sensory experience. The young man goes to work for a pig farmer. And the Pharisees are dry reaching right now because in ancient Judaism, in fact, it's still this way today, the pig is the ultimate symbol of loathing. In fact, going all the way back to the Talmud, there was a practice in Israel to refer to a pig as davar acher, which literally means another thing. So in Israelite culture, there were two things you never mentioned by name. You never mentioned God by name because he was too holy, and you never mentioned the pig by name because it was too filthy. In fact, you weren't simply forbidden from eating pig in Israelite culture. You were even forbidden from raising them. 
And it didn't matter if you were in Israel or some other part of the world. If you were an Israelite and you were raising pigs, they pronounced a curse on you. They took this thing seriously. So when Jesus says to this room full of religious people that the young man now goes to take care of pigs, he is inciting their their feelings of loathing. He wants them to really get a sense of how low this kid had fallen. To the religious listening, this boy is now cursed. He's tended to pigs. He's loathsome. He's as low as he can get. He's beyond redemption. And yet Jesus launches into yet another plot twist. Because when the son comes home, there's no lecture. There's no scolding. Instead, there's a father who runs to him and hugs him and kisses him. Now, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in future sermons as we explore this from different angles as well. But right now, what I want to do as I, as I start to wrap up is I want to look at verse 21. The son in his father's embrace begins to speak. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. See, something has happened. All of a sudden, for the first time in the story, the son's language is no longer all about him. Now it's about the father. He recognizes that he's hurt the father. He recognizes that he's broken community, that he hasn't merely broken rules. He's broken love. And now something changes. Relationship begins to take place. He's seeing the world in a whole new way. His heart is no longer beating to this rhythm of me, my, mine. But there's this symphony of I and you. It's as if the son has become a new person who's received a new way of being. A new heart. And the message of Jesus to the people around him, both the religious and the sinners, is that through him, you too can be a new person. Because you have a terminal condition. Your heart is sick. And all the rules, rituals, and commandments in the world won't Fix it. You need a new heart. And here's the beauty. God can do that. There's this promise at the core of Jesus' story that introduces God as a father who is not interested in your religion. He's interested in you. And he offers you a relationship that doesn't revolve around rules but love and an encounter that promises to change not merely surface behavior but your very Now, I want to wrap up with Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Because this experience that Jesus is trying to bring to his listeners and trying to bring to us this morning is not new. It's not new. All the way back in the Old Testament, God was already repeatedly speaking about this. So I'm just going to look at one verse as we wrap up this morning. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. He says this. God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. I will give you... A new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
I love how Ellen White describes it in the book um, Steps to Christ. She says, a lot of people think the gospel is an improvement on the old life. No. The gospel is not an improvement on the old life. The gospel is being completely reborn into a new life. It's not God healing your heart. It's God putting a new heart in there altogether. I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I'm closing with this. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, first comes a new heart. And from that new heart, God moves you to walk according to his way. The Pharisees had flipped it around. Many of us flip it around. But today my prayer is this. Two things. Number one, that God would give us a new heart. And number two, that as we interact with the world around us, we would remember that it's not rules and standards that save people. It's an encounter with Jesus. Father in heaven, Lord, give us a new heart. A heart that moves in harmony with yours. A lot of times in our spiritual journey, we we tend to have this self-reliance and this focus on fixing ourselves and putting our effort and our energy and our focus into, into rules. And yet the message of Jesus is that it's not behavior that's our problem, it's our heart. And that we can amend our behavior all we want, but that doesn't produce holiness. Only a new heart from above will produce holiness. And so my prayer this morning is that each and every one of us would have that experience with you where we receive that new heart that you have for us. A heart that comes not through the law, but through faith in Jesus. And Father, may that realization transform as well the way in which we relate to the people around us recognizing that if we want the people in our world, in our environment, in our circle of influence to have a saving relationship with you, that the way there is not by emphasizing rules, but by inviting them into a personal encounter with Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.